I'm going to call Jared England up here. Jared is going to be our guest speaker today. Jared was the uh, youth minister here between 2004 and 2007. He uh, graduated from Oklahoma Christian uh, right before that, and he and his wife, Brooke, and family are here, so we welcome you guys. Uh, after that, Jared got his master's in 2012 and then became a licensed marriage and family therapist in 2015 and currently does... Uh, Therapy and counseling mm -hmm. yep. up in the Oklahoma City area. So yeah, yeah. we are so thankful that you're here. Thanks. And let me pray over you. Appreciate it. Father, we thank you so much for this day. And we thank you for the blessings that you provide for us. I pray that you'll bless Jared. And by your spirit, may he bring us your word. Thank you for loving us through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, we love being back. I'm grateful Scott uh, called me and invited me. We actually... Uh, attend where Scott probably had his first job uh, in Edmond, and so he's really highly thought of in our community. Uh, you can talk about Scott, and it always brings a smile uh, to people's face. One of uh, when Scott asked me to preach, I said, "Scott, could we just get the people that really love Jesus here?" And he said, "Yeah, we'll turn off the heat, and we'll see who shows up." And so here we are. Um, and so you're ready. I know uh, this won't fall on deaf ears because you're the frozen chosen, is what we'll call you. <laughs> You've probably had the same experience I have when you went um, and watched people discover new foods, we'll say. Uh, we'll, um, if you've done sushi, you've probably seen the California roll. It's got a little avocado in there. And then maybe you've had the friend that put on what he thought was guacamole on top before they quickly discovered that's uh, wasabi, uh, probably the pickiest student we ever had in student ministry. Uh, we went to a place. He thought he was getting chicken tenders. And when we'd let him get two or three bites in before we asked him, now, why did you order calf rice? Do you really know what those are? And as Logan, as I've heard, preparing for a youth rally, he knows this experience too. Uh, it was one of my early youth ministry experiences. You do all this work. You take the kids on this great trip where there's a, you know, youth group worship. We bring in a special speaker. This one was in Chickasha. So we had done the lights and toured. I'd take them to Jake's rib because you have to if you're in Chickasha. Uh, we got the students out of the van. Grandma yells across the parking lot, did you guys, you know, have a good time? Was it an uplifting experience? And the student yells, yes, we got to eat without any utensils. <laughs> and I thought, well, isn't that, I'm glad you got to come with us and eat with no silverware, which was hilarious because I did notice he in particular, we went to Jake's rib, which is, you know, large portions, and he's like just dropping things in his mouth the whole time. And I thought, odd, but a teenager, well, that was the highlight of his day. Um, so I usually don't start a sermon off with a disclaimer, but I'm going to do it this morning uh, to say this is not exactly that. We're going to look at a story with demon possession, and I'm going to make some parallels to mental illness, but I don't want you to hear that mental illness is demon possession because it's not that I've worked a lot with mental illness and never thought, oh, this is obviously demon possession. Or this might be even. That doesn't happen. Uh, they're two completely different things. But what we see in this story is I think the community's reaction to demon possession is similar to our reaction sometimes as a community to mental illness. Then we're gonna read about the Genesarenes that are way back in like 30 AD, but I think there's some parallels to the community of America in 2022 that I want us just to look at and consider as we talk and read this story out of Luke 8 this morning. 
to see the comparison of these two communities. Because it starts with a guy that we read as demon-possessed, but I want you to remember he was once a real, normal, high-functioning person. That he was a boy who grew up with friends and a family and would come over to dinner. And if they had some sort of Thanksgiving Jewish meal, he would have been there for that. Uh, he would have bounced on grandpa and grandma's lap. That he was a normal kid until something happened. We don't even know that. And that he's going to get a new name that we now know him by. We're going to talk a little bit about that in Luke 8. We're going to start reading this story and kind of crawl through it this morning. In Luke 8, 26 through 32. They sailed to the region of Gennesarenes, across from the Lake of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, Do what you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God. I beg you, do not torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken out of his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Jesus starts with an interesting question. It's a question that he only asks Right here, there's nowhere else in the Gospels. He asks the question, what is your name to this man? And he replies, it's Legion. And I'll point out to you that that's not the man's name. The man had another name. We don't know what that name is. But in this moment, because the demons are in charge, he's called Legion. And so this is one of those stories I could, so every time we could say Legion, I could do the air quotes like Chris Farley used to do on Saturday Night Live. I won't because it would get really annoying. But when you read the story and you realize that's not his name, that's just the name uh, he was called by the demons at the time or what maybe people called him. But what Luke wants us to point, to point out and see as we read this story is that Satan is in charge of this man's life. That he's so in charge, in fact, that he's not even got a name anymore. What he's got is a label of legion that he's gonna go by. And in fact, when Jesus asks him what's his name, that's what he remembers, that I'm legion. And that sometimes in life, don't we get a label too? That sometimes because we're this or that or the other, we're given a label instead of a name. That sometimes we're called depressed or anxious or lost caused or troubled. We hear those names and those are hurtful because we don't become a person, then we become a, become a them. And in the story we see Legion is one of those people. He's a them. He's a label. And Jesus is going to change that. Now, for my cursory reading of Jewish demonology, they know about as much about it as we do now, which is, I don't know. I don't, my take is I've never seen it. I can talk to a few of my missionary friends, probably like Billy can, that would say, yeah, we've seen some stuff that we can't explain, that we've seen um, out and about, but it's one of those things I've never seen demon possession. Um, and it could be that maybe back in Jesus' time, Satan says, I'm going to take off the gloves or we're going to use everything we can to try to throw Jesus off mission. We don't really know, but we know that the response to Legion is what by the community? The initial response of their community is restraint, isn't it? We're going to try to hold this guy down. We're going to try to uh, just put chains and 
attach him to walls and put him under guard. And that doesn't work because he's gonna break away from that and he goes to the tombs. The only place I think in this community he can be left alone because they are not gonna go near the tombs. And so he lives there and he's tortured by this demon. That sound anything like mental illness in our culture today? That we say maybe the best thing right now is restraint, whether we're gonna use physical or maybe medication to restrain someone. And maybe in some cases, of course, that's needed. But what I see is them kind of pushing him to the edge of their society and saying, you stay over there, out of sight, out of mind, Legion, and you're gonna be okay with us. We see a lot of people with mental illness kind of on the fringes of our society these days. And what Luke wants us to see in this story is that Legion is Satan's masterpiece. That if you wanna see Satan totally control, you can go look at Legion and see that he is 150% in charge of his life. He's got no family, he's got no friends, he's got no name. That Jesus, when he compares the mission of Satan into his mission, here's what he says in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And isn't that what's happened with Legion? But he says, I, but I came to give life and give life to the full. Once read, you read the story, what's kind of crazy, though, is as soon as Jesus gets on shore, shore what have the demons done? They've surrendered. Jesus is here, everybody. We're done. And they start to bargain with Jesus, like, just send us over here instead of to the abyss. Uh, don't, don't do whatever you want to with us. We're kind of asking and making this correction because they go into bargaining. And I call this game-recognizing game, right? Jesus is here. We've lost. Um, if you're playing a pickup basketball game and LeBron shows up, I would say just start bargaining there. Don't play the game at that point. Okay, when James talks about the demons believe and shudder, they're shuddering right now at the feet of Jesus because they're bargaining, saying, don't send us in the abyss. I think that's their final resting place. Like, we don't want to go there quite yet, Jesus. Send us somewhere else. We'll continue the story in verse 32 of Luke 8. A herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. We're like the poor pigs, right? And I don't know if this is where they got the Bay of Pigs thing. I don't know. This is a weird part of the story. Uh, my middle daughter, who's an animal lover, I know hears this and she hates this. I remind her, this is not Jesus' plan for the pigs, um, that was not what he wanted, but what does Satan want? He wants to kill and steal and destroy, and so he's gonna pick these poor pigs to do that with. We'll continue reading in verse 34. Those tending the pigs saw what had happened. They ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet dress and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gennesaret went to Jesus, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell the people how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done 
for him. So I don't want to miss Luke's point of this story, which is there's nothing Jesus cannot do. And we need to remember that sometimes, that as followers of Jesus, there's nothing he can't do. Even when he meets Satan's masterpiece, he can deal with it. And they begin to bargain with him as soon as Jesus shows up. That John 10, 10 is true. The thief is going to come to kill and still and destroy, and Jesus came to give life. And he does exactly that in this story. And it's amazing to me that when Jesus leaves his earthly ministry and ascends into heaven, that after Pentecost, when the apostles begin to do much the same things Jesus is going to do and the way they dealt with demon possession and other physical ailments, that all they had to do was say the name of Jesus and call on him and they have the same power as he has. I'm gonna remind you in this story, the most important name in the story is not Legion or what his name was, once again, the most important name of the story is Jesus, isn't it? That he shows up, that he arrives on the scene. And maybe you've had one of those experiences where the name is so important. When I went to the state fair, I got to meet Joan Jett of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And I, I love rock and roll, all right? And it wasn't because I was like, I know Joan Jett. I was like, I knew her nephew. And so I said, well, you know, my friend so-and-so is here. And they're like, well, come on back. And maybe you've had one of those weird experiences where it's the name you know. They get you some special access or you get to do something special because, oh, I know so-and-so. And this is one of those moments where we have to remind you the most important name you know is Jesus. That we know his name. And we need to remember that throughout life as we go about our business that we know Jesus, that we know his name, and he knows our name as well. Then I want to remind you that Jesus knows your name too. That yes, we may call you some names, we may call you an addict, we may call you anxious, we may call you stressed out, we may call you a victim. In fact, in my field, we have a name for that, we call you pathologized. You think you are your disease. Okay, but you're not that, that Jesus knows your name. That this is one of those things that you just have to get comfortable with and start believing is that Jesus not only knows your name, but if he showed up after church, he would have showed up during church because it's cold and I called everybody the, you know, the really faithful ones. But anyways, if he caught you after church, that he'd want to hang out with you that it's whatever your hobby is or whatever your passion is, he'd say, let's go, let's go do it. Let's go drink coffee or knit or go play Wordle together. Let's go do that because I'm keenly interested in knowing and loving you and hanging out with you, that he loves you so much. And that, that Satan, once we say, well, yeah, but you don't know me. I'm really a messed up person. I've got all these issues. Do we have to remember that every person Jesus ever met was a little messed up? that there's no story that we read through the Gospels where he's like, oh, you've arrived. That everybody Jesus encountered had their own issues and Jesus still wants to have relationship with us. That I have to think of passages like Romans 5.8 that reminds us that while we were still sinners, still in the midst of our sin is when Christ died for us. That's how much he loved us. That he relates to 
the folks across the pond that said, we don't want to be royalty anymore. We just want to be normal people. That's Jesus when he says, I'm willing to come down and dwell amongst them. I'm willing to do that. That Jesus did that for us. So I don't want to miss Luke's point in the story of reminding us the power of Jesus, that he knows our name, that he wants to have a relationship with us because he loves us so much. But I want to turn and look at this Genesarene community and their response, which initially starts with restraint, doesn't it? Initially, like, we just need to, and then they're going to say, you know what, out of sight, out of mind, he's over in the tombs, running amok. And then he's healed. The kid that we couldn't control, we weren't sure what he was going to do, but it wasn't going to be good. He's out in the tombs, and he's healed, and what is their reaction? It should have been a celebration. This should be the party scene, right? Hey, you remember the guy that we used to call Legion, kind of made fun of him because he was nothing but a wild man? There should be the party setting next. Hey, he's back. We have someone that was lost, now found because of Jesus. We are so thrilled. But what do we see in this story? Instead of celebration, the community begins to count the cost, don't they? They begin to go, man, that cost us a lot of pigs. And what about the guys that were shepherding and, well, they're now bobbing for pork. We don't know what to do. This Jesus guy is, frankly, unpredictable. It would have been nice if he would have asked us maybe what to do instead of sending them to the pigs. I don't know. That, should the community have said, we are so excited for the work of Jesus We're so excited for this young man. Instead of saying, Jesus, would you leave? We just, that'd be the best thing for our community right now is we don't want any more of your miracles. I think it begins to ask us a tough question of what do we do when we're encountering things that are difficult and hard, something like mental illness, that they say is a $300 billion industry every year. And sometimes we can go and we can count the cost and go, man, that's a lot of money. For those of you that have engaged that industry, it is. But worse, I think even more so than money is the time and emotional toll it takes on people that are either dealing with it themselves or surrounding surrounding people that are dealing with it. It's a lot of emotion, it's a lot of energy, it's a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of thankless hours that you go to places that are kind of scary sometimes and really unknown. I'm reminded sometimes that the kingdom of God goes clear to the gates of hell. I feel like I've been pretty close to those gates a couple times. And that's what mental illness sometimes takes us to. Some really scary and difficult places. And so we ask ourselves, are we gonna be celebrating? Are we gonna be counting the cost? What are we gonna do in those moments? And one of the things I love about Edgemere is how you guys have encountered those moments and done something for the kingdom of God. One of the reasons I became a therapist 
One of the big reasons I became a therapist, in fact, was my time here. And you guys had your counseling center, which you still had. And I would talk with Brian Ray, who was the counselor then, and say, Brian, they told us never to do counseling. And he's like, you're, you're right, you shouldn't. I said, I've thought about maybe getting my master's. He's like, you can totally do it. I went, really? He said, yeah, no problem. And he was wise not to tell me how much time it was actually gonna take, because I would have said, no way. Okay, but I'm so thankful he was encouraging and helped me through that. And I love that you guys are still doing that on Tuesdays here. You're saying, here's space. If you need counseling, we're gonna offer that as a way to help our community and help our folks here. I think about the ways this church goes to places like the North Texas State Hospital, that the late uh, Tony Shirey was like the best, nicest arm twister ever, wasn't she? And the way she'd say, we'd love you to come and you know, just do this for Christmas, help our residents there. And I know you guys still do that to honor her in a way to encourage those folks. The folks that are there with severe, severe mental illness are really the lucky ones, if I'm really honest with you, because they have good care and they're taken care of. The folks that don't end up there will typically end up two other places that you guys also serve. One is gonna be homeless. They end up on the streets somewhere and the Sunshine House is something available for them every week that they can go and get help on. And some of you that have worked and served and volunteered there, you've met a few of those folks and went, yeah, they're tough and they're a little difficult, but I love the way this church has been steadfast in helping at the Sunshine House. The other place that a lot of folks with severe mental illness end up or at are in prison. And I'm so thankful for Stephen and his ministry that many of you help with at the Aldred Unit and helping the men there that are suffering, um, a lot of them from some mental illness that they just can't get past. And I love the way this church is willing to go to those places, those difficult and hard places and help people. That we're reminded sometimes that we have to walk in faith and not fear, right? That sometimes when we wanna walk easy, it means we've gotta walk and pick up our cross and say, I know this is gonna be really difficult and this is gonna be really hard for me to do, but I'm gonna go love people like I know Jesus does and wants me to love people. And so we go to some places that are really difficult and really hard in order to do that. I wanna make this really practical for you guys that are trying to love people that are suffering mental illness. So I said, here's some do's and don'ts if you wanna walk with someone that's hurting, whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever it is. My do's and don'ts list, which is I know really simple, okay? Do get an understanding of symptoms. Let them know you're here for them. Listen, keep communication open. Practice good self-care, all right? If you're worn out and tired, take a break. That's totally okay to do if you can, okay? You don't have to talk to, like, constantly talk about it. You don't have to enable them. You don't need to put pressure on them. You don't need to get frustrated. You can't expect change to happen immediately. They probably didn't get there immediately. Okay, those are ways you can help people that are suffering with you know, depression, anxiety, those kind of things, as you walk with them. We embrace hurting people. That's what the people of God do. I know this church does and will continue to do. And I'll remind you that while we read the end of Legion's story as 
Jesus leaves and he begs to go, but he stays, that's because Jesus knows his story will continue because Legion's going to be the second missionary ever sent out by Jesus, isn't he? He says, you stay here and you tell your story to the Decapolis, the 10 cities here. I'm just gonna guess they all know what his story was. He was the wild man. And now he's gonna get to tell the story of who he is now as a follower of Jesus and what Jesus has done for him, an incredible story. Rick Warren is a recently retired preacher, was at our United States, one of our biggest churches, best-selling author. If you'd have looked at him and his family, you'd have said they had it all together. Uber successful, one of those guys that could have walked away from ministry because he had his book career, managed to hold both of those intentions so well. What most people probably didn't know about the Warrens is that Rick and Kay had a son named Matt. And around age seven, Matt was diagnosed with depression. And I'm gonna tell you that's pretty early. So he must have been just kind of born sad. And as Rick and Kay would tell you, they tried everything to cure him. They tried medicine, they tried the best therapists, they tried the best doctors. They had the money to take him wherever he wanted to go or ever needed to go to get treatment. And they did that as best they could. But in 2014, after a great night with family, everybody went home. Matt was 27, he lived on his own. And then they didn't hear from him the next day. And they thought, well, they hear from Matt. Of course they got worried because they know he'd struggled with depression almost his entire life. And their son died from suicide. And you wonder, how does Rick get back up in the pulpit and talk about following Jesus when he's had such tragedy? And their own suffering through mental illness is they just never could get Matt through it. And so what they did was, after, of course, a time of grieving and a time where they weren't in the pulpit at all, as they worked through their grief, and I think they'd say they're still working through their grief. But as they dealt with that, Rick said, Kay, I think you're gonna handle this because you're gonna be the one that's gonna talk about mental illness and how churches can help. And that's gonna be a portion of who we are as we're gonna say, here's what the church can do. And Rick lived out something he had said years earlier that I think is important for us to remember when he said, your greatest ministry will likely come out of your greatest hurt. And it certainly has. I still tell people to go to Kay Warren's site. Um, it's a great place for church leaders to get some resources for helping folks with mental illness. And so we need to remember that sometimes our greatest Ministry will come out of our most painful hurt. That maybe that's encouragement to you if you've dealt with some things or you've walked with some people through some things that maybe God is equipping you to help more people along the way. It's a wonderful promise he gives us. 
That if this morning, if you come and you're hurting, we want to help you with that. We want to walk with you wherever you need to go, whatever you're walking through, we'd love to do that. That maybe this morning you're in pain, but you're hoping it becomes ministry and God can redeem that. We want to do that for you as well. If we can pray for you, we'd love to pray for you. And maybe this morning you've never called the name of Jesus to say, I want him to be my Lord and Savior. We'd love to help you with that as well. We'll baptize you this morning. We'll talk to you about baptism. We'll study with you if you're ready uh, to do that. If we can serve you this morning, we'd love to do so as we stand together and sing.